What's up, everybody? Welcome to Revival Town Podcast. I'm Chuck Tate. That's Andy King. Hey, how you doing, mate? I'm doing great. As always, mate, it's always good to get together and hang out with you. Thank you, mate. Thank yeah. you. That's not what you were saying earlier, but thanks. That's right. It was like, oh, right. no, I, I'm going to be with him again today. <laughs> I didn't think you heard me earlier, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> oh, hey, lots happened the last few weeks. Right. One of which a uh, a massive film has come out in the U.S. Uh, I think it's global, but... Um, Definitely in the U.S., the Jesus Revolution. Jesus Revolution. And all I can picture is Jack Black in a movie <laughs> approaching a female and saying, why don't we get together and start a revolution? <laughs> this is not that. We're talking about Jesus <laughs> Revolution. <laughs> not Jack Black. <sighs> Jesus Revolution. What an amazing film. Amazing. I, I stood up and cheered. I really did. You know the part where people are ticked off because Chuck Smith is inviting the hippies into the services? Yes. So there are parishioners who get up and walk out, and there's an old man who gets up, and you think he's going to leave, but he walks across the aisle and sits with the hippies. Yeah. I loved it. I stood up and cheered. That, that, honestly, that's, that was my vision when we started Rock Church. Yeah. We planned Rock Church. I don't know if you know this, but one of the stories behind Rock Church was a friend of mine way, way back in the day, his brother, I tried to get him to come to church, tried to get him to come to church. This is before I was a pastor. I was a youth pastor at a church. And he just, man, he was not going to ever come. And I could tell something was there. And I wasn't trying to pressure him or even force him. I just simply said one day, hey, man, what's, what's, what's the story? What's going on? How come... And this dude had real long hair, real long beard. I mean, he looked like he could step right into a ZZ Top video. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And he said, I'm going to tell you why, Chucky. He goes, because you know what? Somebody invited me to church a long time ago. And uh, I was nervous. I was afraid to go. But I went. Someone walked up to me and said, hello, sir. We're glad you're here. But please don't come back unless you cut your hair and shave. Ugh. I was never, never going back. Mm. And man, that just burned me. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a scripture where, you know, Jesus addresses Pharisees like that. Yeah. You know, when he talks about you, you work hard to clean the outside of the dish, but the inside you're full of dead man's bones. Yeah. He said, check this out. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, but after you do so, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Mm. Powerful words. You know what? It's the story of Chuck Smith. Yeah. And Lonnie Frisbee people coming to Christ, this Greg Laurie, this Jesus revolution yeah. is so incredible. Yeah, I, I tell you the, the the scene that really got me, there was many scenes, but the one that got me was when um, the pastor was getting, uh, the, the elder board were coming up to him and saying, hey, they, they're messing the carpet up. They're bringing dirt in. And the next scene is the pastor with a bowl washing everyone's feet as they yes, walk on, into yeah. the church. Did you not tear up? Oh, I mean, I mean, man. man. So here's a crazy... I actually took my shoes and socks off and started walking down the aisle. <laughs> the, the theater emptied pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, like, Get your feet out of my popcorn bucket. I tell you what, though, mate. True story. I started talking at, at, our, at the Dream Center, our maintenance guy, Chip... I started talking to him and he's like, 
uh, Andy, do you know that me and my wife were a part of all of that? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, my wife was saved at Calvary, the, the church, and they both got baptized at Pirate's Cove. Did they really? Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. And I don't know if you've seen the video, but while they were filming it... I did see this. People from around the area that were there just seeing what was happening were running into the water and wanting to get baptized and were getting saved as they were filming that scene. Even some... Yeah, even extras. Yeah, the extras. But extras, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So, yeah, if... If you haven't seen it, you got to go and see it. And here's another thing, and I know not everyone's going to get this reference, but me and you, we are massive Outer Banks fans, right? It's a right. show on TV. Right. right. Um, and one of the main characters from Outer Banks was in Jesus Revolution, right. which was a double whammy for well, me. Yeah, I was we, like, we were waiting for him to say, What's up, Country Club? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Country Club. Oh, oh yeah. Good. Just a great movie and love the heart of Greg Laurie. And, yeah. and if you're unfamiliar with the movie, first of all, if you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. Because yeah. it's not just about Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee. It's about Greg Laurie. Yeah. And the role that he played in the Jesus movement. And that's still ongoing. Yeah. If you don't know who Greg Laurie is, just literally Google him. He he packs out the Dodgers Stadium with thousands upon thousands of people every year called Harvest. And there is thousands of people that come to christ each and every year in fact i remember many years ago he would invite always invite delirious to go and do the worship at these events and they would always talk about these events that were crazy because so many people nothing flash about it nothing crazy, a bit like the billy graham stuff right, right? you go right. see billy graham it was it was nothing flash about it at right. all but yet the message hit through and thousands would come to Christ. So, yeah, so he was impacted. And now look at the impact he's had. Yeah. In fact, somebody who's friends with Greg Laurie is a friend of ours, Evangelist Matt Brown, who's been in Revival Town. And I met Matt and our guest today yeah. in person at something called Digital Billy Graham Summit. And that was a, a, a conference that was a gathering of people who want to use their platform to further the gospel and our guest today dr sam kim is doing just that in the in the platform that he has is speaking to people that honestly andy you and i aren't going to reach right right. he is a, a thought leader he is a incredibly intelligent man of God who yeah. is going to reach philosophers like the yes. Apostle Paul. And not just that, but the, his book that's coming out is going to help all of us be able to better share our faith and know what we believe and why we believe it. Yeah, so why don't you sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Sam Kim. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. All right, everyone, it's time for another conversation on a Revival Town podcast. 
Our guest today, Reverend Dr. Sam D. Kim, is a Harvard-trained ethicist and the co-founder of 180 Church, located near Union Square in downtown Manhattan. Dr. Kim was appointed as a research fellow in global health and social medicine at the Center for Bioethics at Harvard Medical School and part of Harvard Catalyst. He is a recipient of Lifelong Learning Fellowship at Yale Divinity School and Yale Medicine and is awarded by the John Templeton Foundation and AAA. He is a regular contributor at Christianity Today, Version Bible App, Outreach, and the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. He lives in New York City with his wife, Lydia, and his two sons, Nathan and Josh. His book, A Holy Haunting, releases everywhere books are sold on April 11th. We can't wait to talk to him about it. Dr. Kim, welcome to Revival Town. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Listen, Great it's, to be here. Well, it's so cool to have you. Now, I was introduced to you in Kansas City back in June at something called Digital Billy Graham Summit. In fact, we've had a few guys that were at the summit on on the podcast, and I remember listening to you, and when I heard about your book, I was like, I told Andy, we've got to get this guy on the podcast. In fact, I, I, I talked with him this morning, and I said, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess... This is the smartest cat who's ever been on our show. I'm just going to say that. I, I think wherever you go, you're the smartest guy in the room. And we're just honored to have you on, Sam. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I doubt that. <laughs> Thank you for the flattery. Yeah, when, when Chuck, Chuck, told, Chuck told me, you know, all the different things you, you had done, and I was like, hmm, we, we may just need to be quiet and just let you talk the whole conversation. <laughs> but no, we, we really are thankful for you to come on. And, you know, we always say this at the beginning of the podcast um, when uh, folks are being introduced to someone new. We, we want to find out about who you are, your, your story. Could you just go into that a little bit? Obviously, you, you know, we, people heard at the top of the podcast this whole list of different things that you have done and places you've been and things that you're a part of right now. But how, how did you get there? Can you, can you just unwrap that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think that my journey begins uh, in Seoul, Korea, uh, moving to the States in 1987 with my parents, entrepreneurs, coming into Manhattan. I think I'm one of the only few people I know in Manhattan, that's pastoring in Manhattan. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, growing up in Central Park and on the Upper West Side, uh, really developed a, you know, the, the feelings and pangs of loneliness and the struggle of adolescence. But then in the midst of that story of being in a city of 23 million people just being around everywhere, I found a holy haunting uh, in the one who made me and found me, and my life was never the same again. And uh, I guess New York is a microcosm of all the energy, achievement, and beauty of culture can offer. But even even in the midst of all that, uh, I would say that uh, my longing had a name, and his name was Jesus, mm. and I discovered him, and he took me, found me, and he launched me uh, into blessing the world uh, through the power of his presence and love. Oh, 
That's That's good. So did you grow up in a Christian home or did you come to faith on your own? I did. Okay. I did. My parents were one of the uh, first Methodist uh, in Seoul that planted, helped plant a church uh, and then planted another church here in New York uh, with another group of uh, United Methodist folks. So I was in the church my whole life. Uh, My dad had a radical conversion. He was an alcoholic and drunk, beat my mom and my brother before I was born, but when he found Christ, my brother told me that he became a different man. So I was born into that legacy wow. um, from the get-go, yeah. Now, I, <clears throat> this really, um, I, I get really fascinated with uh, churches that um, do life in cities, right? Um, mm-hmm. So just a, a bit of background, I run a, a dream center here in Peoria, uh, we have a homeless shelter and after-school programming and apartments for single moms. And uh, and so obviously I'm downtown in Peoria a lot, dealing with uh, a lot of need, okay? Um, obviously, having a church in Manhattan, there is, there is, there's a city like Peoria that's a smaller city, but then you've got places mm. like LA and London and New York and the how tough that must be as well in just trying to navigate church. Can you just just tell us a little bit about your church and also perhaps some of the challenges of being in a right in the city? Yeah, I mean, I think that for immigrants who immigrate, the church context, especially if they're Protestants or evangelicals, I mean, I think it's the major social fabric of their lives Mm. and it becomes their support system. So I think for like, like Keller talks about at center church when he came into Manhattan, 1987, that's when I actually moved into Manhattan. (laughs) So Tim Keller and I, we both came to Manhattan together. God knew this. He he predestined this guy, (laughs) but, uh, but the microcosm of the city for what he, what Tim noticed was that immigrants who came into the city was looking for a transcending faith because of the social pressures in life. So for me, the church was a refuge in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a place of a, a community for me to, to have friends, to eat uh, food together. And it was, it was a refuge in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, secularization was still foreign to me in many ways in the beginning. That would not happen until I go to college. And face my own deconstruction, which I talk about in the book. But uh, for me, the center of the city uh, and the church wasn't odd at all because it was the place where I felt uh, real community and hospitality. Mm, That's good. And how how have things been in Manhattan post-COVID? Obviously, churches and pastors across the board Mm -hmm. have all experienced Mm -hmm. church pre-COVID, post-COVID. Did, have, did you see the same kind of drop-offs in the city? Um, oh, as, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, like NYU has 65% NYU um, um, international students. <laughs> I think they're the only ones that probably could afford the tuition. It's like 60000 <laughs> a year. <laughs> but, um, I mean, international students all went back. So churches who ministered to them lost a lot of people. And a lot of people just um, got the got into the habit of not going to church, just going online. So there was a lot of, a, a big drop off in many ways we've, we've seen and people are starting to come back. Um, but I think it's still a, you know, a 
quite a bit of tr- transition for folks. Um, I don't think COVID is really the issue. I think it's a discipleship, discipleship issue. Um, but yeah, so we're seeing the effects pretty clearly. Wow. Well, um, another question that I have, you mentioned soul, um, any, any connection with Dr. Young Cho in the huge movement that, that he started in soul? Of course, he's passed away now. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Was there, my dad, my dad, uh, attended Young Cho's church when they had about 50, hundred people before a million. Wow. wow. um yeah so he saw the beginnings of that ministry in the radical transformation of seoul korea being the 10th largest economy in the world when it was basically a third a developing country um around 1980s and literally becoming a champion economy one of the you know tiger asian countries and economies so the power of the gospel's effect in Korea is, I think, a marvel and a case study for God's power. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So you came with your parents in 1987. They were entrepreneurs. Um, since then, have have they or you returned? Actually, uh, been parts of different parts of Asia, but no, we haven't. Actually, going back this summer for Luzon, um, uh, leadership meeting in in Jeju, Korea, and then 2024, there's the Luzon 4. So I'll be going back uh, the next two years, actually. Okay, excellent. Well, let's yeah. talk Let's talk about Holy Haunting, because um, I, I love the title, and I think the, the book cover is one of my favorite book covers that I've seen in, in a while. <laughs> yes. Love it. Yeah. And it, Thank it's you so, much. so intriguing, yeah. And I know that this book is going to help so many people especially those who are, are struggling with their faith, and even those who have a friend who's struggling with their faith, and they don't even know how to approach that friend. So why don't you just un- unpack A Holy Haunting? And I know it's release, it releases everywhere April 11th. Um, and before you do, my, my first question is this. Are you going to record, is there going to be an audible version? I'm, yeah, there will be an audible yeah, version uh, in the end. Yes. Summer, I think, yeah. All right. Good deal. That that's my that's my jam. I'm I just I'm always <laughs> listening to a book, and I'm I'm looking forward to, to reading the book as as well. Um, so I mean, whether it's a Kindle version, whether it's it's you know it's a hard copy, softback doesn't matter to me. But I just I just love the the audible version. Are you narrating or somebody else narrating? Yeah, I'll be narrating. All right. Good. Good deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you take us through it? Yeah, so I wrote A Holy Haunting uh, primarily to clarify uh, the alarming confusion uh, people have, particularly in a post-Christian audience, their notion of faith in two or three embedded environments. The first environment would be the dominant culture or the secular elite. Um, A lot of folks in the Ivy Tower – and just in the dominant culture, believe that faith is a blind leap. And at best, it's a placebo. At worst, it's a delusion. Dawkins even called prayer in his book, God is a Delusion. Um, prayer is equivalent to, you know, calling upon a sky fairy. So uh, there is a theme and a motif where uh, the secular elite get faith wrong when the New Testament doesn't depict faith, the nature of faith, even the theory of faith, 
as a leap, it uh, show, it really depicts it as a series of steps. And if you look at the New Testament narrative depiction, the disciples didn't leap into martyrdom on day one. Right. And Jesus actually never said, come and believe. He said, come and see. Mm. And the three and a half year journey were, you know, marked by skepticism, belief, and wonder. And if you carefully read the account, there was an epic collapse of faith on the day of the resurrection. And there was much skepticism. Easter is not a story of faith. It's a story of doubt, deep embedded doubt being turned on its head. And so people uh, don't have never read the New Testament. They just assume. So there's a pride and prejudice against biblical faith because they've never read it. They just heard about it from somewhere. So my number one goal was to help the secular leader say, no, there's a rationality inquiry into the, the, these guys that we name our children after in, you know, 2000 years after Jesus's resurrection. So it's a, not a leap, a blind leap. There are a series of steps. So that's the first um, environment in which I address. You guys have any questions about that part before I move on second? Oh, yeah. that's, that, so that's so yeah, because you break down the book into three parts: faith and theory, faith yeah. and process, faith, mm-hmm. faith, exactly. and, faith and practice. Um, in, in practice, so Andy, any anything? Just what you said. I mean, I mean, even the whole side of Easter, right? We, yeah. we we see that. Can you just open that a little bit more? Because you know, obviously, we're we're right around Easter time. There's a lot of people looking at that. What you're saying is. That also brought a lot of doubt at that time as well. Even though what was going on was was changing history, for those who were there at that time, there they was didn't doubt. It. Yeah, there was doubt. Can you can you just open yeah, that I a mean, little bit? Yeah, to the disciples when you know Mary's told the, told Peter and the disciples he is risen. Those three words, Peter kept repeating them to back to the women. He is risen, but he couldn't believe them. Right. Mm. He even told them, stop it. You're talking nonsense. Now, this is a man who Jesus said he will build his church. So in my very estimation, these men were very much rational. They didn't leap into martyrdom. They're actually escaping martyrdom Mm -hmm. and self-preservation. They were weak and frail, just like many of us. And their faith was tested. That is more believable to me than them going, of course he he rose. They weren't some religious uh, bigots or people who weren't thinking. They were very tied to reality and tethered to reality. And I think that that's what people miss, the reactions. And the New Testament writers like Mark, they do not highlight um, their strength, but they actually illuminate their bloopers and Mm. their doubt because it – makes us go, wow, this is must be a true story because these are not legends. Right. They're just people who said yes to God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that. Illuminate their bloopers. That's good. That's good stuff. Because when Jesus was arrested, they all fled. They all ran. Peter, who, yes, Jesus said, I'm going to 
build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Denied Jesus three times after he told Jesus that he wouldn't. Yeah. He said, if I, have to, if I have to go to jail for you, if I have to die for you, I will never disown you. And of course, Jesus is like, well, listen, before the rooster crows, you know, you're going to deny me three times. And then, and then it happened. And then the rooster crowed and he realized, oh, man, I did it. And it says he went out and, and he wept bitterly. And then we find out they just, you know, they obviously didn't believe it because they all went back to their jobs. I mean, when they went back to fishing. And then the next thing to know, Jesus shows up on the beach cooking them breakfast. And that's when he dove overboard and realized, wait a minute, this, this is true. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Right, right. It's, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't you then t- take us th- take us through the next part of the book? Then the faith in the process. Yeah. So I think from the secular elite, that's their prejudiced and pride uh, that faith is a blind leap when New Testament depicts it as a series of steps. Um, secondly, I think the second environment is for the church itself. I think that uh, many, like the disciples, are deconstructing their faith in a secular age. But there is a deep sense of shame because the church, you know, for the last 500 years in modernism and theology and systematic theology embodied in modernism, we're not very good at dealing with ambiguity. (laughs) We like things to be very black and white and certain, but when life is not lived that way. And the disciples didn't, they didn't live in complete faith. They didn't have, you know, they doubted much of their three and a half year journey with Jesus, but that culture is not embedded in the church. We have a, a systemic way of dealing with truth and facts, but we have a very hard time dealing with gray and beige. And I think um, if we look at the statistics, uh, especially in youth groups and young adults, in the next decade, you will have 150 to 100 million, those associated with the Church of Mainline, you know, um, Protestants, evangelicals, and et cetera, Catholics, that will be going through deconstruction in the university. Um, You're talking about 100 million students, professional students, college students, and uh, gone through it myself in college. To doubt uh, the veracity of Christianity feels like betrayal if you grew up in the church. And so you don't talk about it to other people. You become a vagabond, a spiritual vagabond, and you sort of isolate and you feel shame. But isn't it human to doubt? Have we not questioned our parents' love growing up? Uh, Are they good people? Are they telling the truth? I mean, it's natural. So, so, So this deconstruction, a lot of times, is not deep, deep embedded doubt about a lot of things. It's just growth and questioning. Yeah. before coming back to reconstruction. And I think that those millions of students need someone to tell them, hey, it's human to doubt. Mm-hmm. And Christianity can stand up to the veracity um, when you examine it carefully. So that's the second part. There's so many dealing with shame and guilt that I, I you know, just during the pandemic, I had two Columbia students, really smart kids, just wanting to meet because they couldn't tell their parents that they were doubting and, they, and, you know, one kid said to me, you know, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian anymore, but I don't know how to tell my parents. But who doesn't say that in college? Like, you have to help people on the journey of faith. And so that's the second part of the book, Faith in Process. A lot of people think that faith 
is opposed to doubt, but it's actually the New Testament. This it, it's actually part of the journey, part of the process. So that's the second environment in which I sort of address in the book. Great. Well, before you get to the third, um, I have a question for you. Did you personally ever doubt your faith or when did you embrace your faith as your own? You grew up in a Christian church. You moved mm-hmm. here. Uh, you were surrounded, you know, by, by ministry. When, when did this become your faith, not your parents' faith, yours? Yeah, I mean, I experienced a radical uh, conversion experience when I was a kid at 16 in, in the city. And it was my own. It was personal. It was not my parents' faith. Um, and I, I led a Bible study, led 40 kids, um, to Christ one summer after that, we read the Bible together. It was that time of growth and, um, really evangelizing and living for the Lord that I experienced so much joy. But when I went to college, my mom had a heart attack, uh, when I was 19 and when she had the heart attack. It wasn't theodicy. I wasn't dealing with, like, why would the Lord allow this? I I really believed when my dad told me that she had this heart attack in the dorm. I was in tears, and I read about this in Chapter 3 in, in Spiritual Refugees. I was in a pool of tears, and I found some solace in, in thinking about, well, at least I'll see her in heaven. And then I heard an insidious voice in my heart that said, what if there is no heaven? And that's when my deconstruction began. Like, I'm putting all my hope, all my eggs in one basket in the scriptures and in Jesus. But then the question that I had to ask myself was, is this true? Or is this something I believe as a placebo in many ways? So that's when I believe made me question the veracity of the gospel and grasp uh, the veracity of everything that I believe in. And I have my... Um, about 15 months of questioning and doubting. But then uh, at the tail end, I came back out Mm. with even a greater faith because not only was Christianity and its veracity greater, the presence of God was greater. Mm. And I now believed more than I ever believed before, just like the disciples in many ways. Yes. Well, you know, I've pastored the same church for 25 years that I, I launched in 1998. And throughout that, those more than two decades, I have witnessed people who were steadfast until tragedy struck. And mm. we've all experienced tragedy, and, it, and tragedy oftentimes does cause us to really dig deep and ask ourselves, do I really, do I believe that God is still good, even though these bad things are, are happening to me? And a lot of times it can be that season of sadness or suffering that can cause somebody to deconstruct. And we hear a lot about deconstruction, deconstruction, deconstruction. That's, that's one of the, the big words right now. And, and you said something that um, I think is so important for our listeners to hear, reconstruction. So can you mm-hmm. just take a moment before we get into, into, into part three of your book and, and talk about the importance mm-hmm. of if you're going to deconstruct, you need to reconstruct. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, when you look at the story going, referring back to the story of the resurrection, we, what we seen in the disciples discipleship was a deconstruction of values and entitlements and beliefs. And, 
and they believed in in a you know a kingdom of Israel that would come with political power, and they had to be reformed in many ways, reconstruction for them. Um, and even after Jesus does everything, they ask, "Hey, Jesus, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom of Israel?" Mm. And and so you see the reconstruction in the disciples' life being change their heart and their minds being changed toward the mission of the kingdom of God cosmologically in many ways. So I believe that when you are honest with God and honest with others and you bring your doubts, the Holy Spirit is very good at meeting you where you are and deepening your faith because without doubt, there can't be real faith. And this is actually particularly uh, transitioning a bit to the third part of the book. Even Charles Darwin, uh, many people confuse about his, is that the scientific work he gave on the uh, on origins of species is the science he, he puts in the book that evolution is God-breathed into few forms or many, and gravity is what is, is evolving it. He says in the book that it's God-breathed. Mm-hmm. He credits the creator of creating. Now, his own existential crisis of faith is when his daughter died, and he had a personal mm-hmm. crisis of faith. Mm. So there are two different things sometimes, you know, and as you said, Chuck, like, you know, when we go through our personal tragedies, it's an, I believe, an opportunity. Mm. And the devil and the the demonic powers are going to come to try to snuff you out. But our job is to snatch people out of the fire, as Jude said as well, Mm. and to refine us, not to burn us, but to refine us. And so for me, the reconstruction part was the relief, and I think it alleviated a lot of pressure when people doubt their faith now. And that's why I wrote this book, because I know the shame and the weight. It was the, the most agonizing experience of my life at that 19-year-old. Uh, and I want to help people empathize in the moment and hold their hand and be like, hey, this is not that weird. Mm, right. This is not a doubt. Yeah. What do you, you feel with, with, with the whole deconstruction stuff? I... You know, we, we've had many different guests on the podcast. Elisa Childers is, is one of them that is very much uh, on the forefront of some of this stuff. But what do you think the dangers are? Because you went into it deconstructing, but, but there was a reconstruction. And mm-hmm. many go into deconstruction really because they've got a, a grudge against the church. Right. Um, what are, what are some of the dangers of people doing deconstruction and not going about it the right way that you see that that goes the bad way? You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the poor deconstruction. I think from a biblical framework would be out of the twelve, there's one that deconstructs and doesn't come back, and it's Judas. Mm. Um, and if you look at it, you, you hang. You know, he hung himself out of guilt. And what happens is, I think it's more of a spiritual battle, honestly, to tell you. I think there's a demonic element, mm. pomp and pride of, of willful blindness that enters. And when bitterness and resentment and pain, and we cope venting with bitterness and vitriol, a lot of times that bitterness takes root. And you know, the, the sad, tragic reality is, God is waiting for us. Like the prodigal son parable, right? He's waiting, but he doesn't dominate our own agency by forcing us back to him. And that's why there's a place called hell. You know, I always think of hell um, as that one line in prejudice. When Mr. Darcy says to Elizabeth, um, 
you know, if you tell me one word today, um, I shall be silenced forever. He says, and God eventually says, okay, I'll give you what you want. Mm. I believe that's what hell is. Uh, not that he, God is not wanting to be in relationship with us. He's giving us to our delusions in ways of our fantasy of what we think will make us safe or happy, or whatever. So I think the danger is time being alone, walking alone. Because how does the how does wolves kill sheep? They isolate you, mm. and to be in your own head. So I think if you're deconstructing, do it in community. Right. Do not leave a local church because you say, "Well, I don't think I believe anymore." Those two students, they're doubting, but they wanted to come. And I think the language of inclusivity of of struggles and brokenness, the theology of weakness, of integrating into our language and liturgy of the church is so paramount because when people hear it, they go, maybe I can talk to this uh, person. I can talk to this pastor Mm. or this small group leader. They're talking about my weakness and brokenness and they're accepting of it. So I think, I think there are both parts to it. We have to encourage honesty and be able to catch people where they are and meet them where they're at. I love that. That's good. Well, why don't you take us into part three, faith and practice? Yeah. So um, part three is a third environment of faith and practice are a basic apologetics, but a, a church struggling to engage the public square. I think we have to read the external environment and leadership theory makes it very clear. If you are not relevant to your psychosocial uh, factors, uh, the organization becomes obsolete. And so I believe we need to bring back and read the environment. And a lot of people are asking very basic questions. And um, in my book, I, I address four of them, which is the origin question, which is, did God really create the world? Because there's this debate about science and faith again, the Big Bang theory. Um, I'll come back to that. Uh, the veracity question, Um is the Bible, the New Testament particularly, reliable? I mean, if you play telephone in school, the, the message changes. Is the New Testament documents reliable after 2,000 years? And the historicity question, which is, did Jesus actually really exist? I think more than anything, a lot of, I call it the tyranny of ignorance. Like Some people say, how do you even know Jesus existed? Well, the people in the age of TikTok are questioning how Helen Keller existed. It doesn't make any sense that she did. Mm. Like, how could she do all that being who she is? Mm. And so there's a whole generation asking these wow. questions. And, and lastly, the paranormal question. Does God really speak today? Um, how do you know it's not your lunch that went bad, that gone bad? How do you, you know, how do you know that, that – um, God is speaking. So, the, so I address those four, and particularly, I think the most important part was chapter five. Um, I have some friends um, who is a, a professor associated at Harvard reading my book right now. Um, for someone like him who has this scientific mind, that's the question he's asking: Could you reconcile science and faith? Aren't they two opposing worldviews? And that's the assumption that the secular elite make. And sometimes the deconstructing part for some Christians is, can evolution 
and um, creation be reconciled as well. And I think those two, there's a two front war. And sometimes I think the church focuses on the wrong side of the battle and, and focuses too much on generalizations. Augustine made it very clear. Um, I don't know how or why he was so brilliant, but he talks about not touching science in a way. And because it can alleviate some tensions right now. Don't state things as facts if you're if it could be proven later wrong. Mm. So I address those mainly those kind of things um, in the book. Man, I can't wait. That's good. It's going to be so helpful, and I think it's going to be not just helpful for the re- it's going to be a great resource for for pastors and for for leaders. Very timely as well. Yeah, for where we're at as a culture. Right, because, um, you know, you mentioned the TikTok culture, and, you know, one of the things I've shared before is, like, I mean, to, to, to say Jesus didn't exist as a, as a person on planet Earth is to, is to say Abraham Lincoln didn't exist. I mean, it's a historical fact. We have historical documents. In fact, we, we you know, we have, there's never been an archaeological discovery to discredit Scripture, but we have more, our, our like, archaeological discoveries to validate Scripture than, than any book in history. We have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any book in history and all these different things. Um, but I didn't, even, I didn't even consider for a moment that there's a, a TikTok generation that questioned the existence of even Helen Keller. That's just fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're untethered. We're untethered from history and reality because now social media has usurped authority of experts and now any voice goes. I mean, you have Joe Rogan getting paid three hundred million dollars, while you have a professor of Harvard that can't pay get get paid ten thousand for a book. So the power has been disrupted in many ways, and mm. that's not necessarily always a bad thing. Um, but you know, one thing I would love to tell people, uh, especially in the U.S. and North America, is don't be afraid of science and faith, because if and I think honestly, there's an ignorance in the church's side of faith. You want science to be on your side because, and and this is I think one thing in the book that's kind of like a punch, like a punch in the face to uh, the tyranny of ignorance of science for the Christian side because a lot of um, of us are like we're always getting beaten by Dawkins and like with all this vitriol and all the Christians think oh we we don't have anyone in our side like for example. Of evolution, but let's go to the the number one idea of evolution, which is the Big Bang theory. The Big Bang theory was actually discovered by a Catholic priest, Dutch Catholic priest by George Lemaitre, a MIT Harvard astronomer. And why you want to argue for Bang theory, starting in science, is because without his discovery, no way you can say that creation started. Mm. You can prove Genesis 1 by the theory of the Big Bang because Einstein and Hubble both thought that the universe was continuous and infinite, that there was no beginning point. There was no Genesis. Metra totally destroyed that. (laughs) And people used to make fun of Metra. The Big Bang theory wasn't actually a badge of honor. A lot of physicists used to say, look at that guy. That guy's the Big Bang guy. Because they didn't want to admit that to be true. And eventually, Big Bang Theory became the origin of the universe story. Why wouldn't you want that? And so people don't know that to be the fact. So now when you look at the expanding universal model, it's 
coined by NASA and the inter- in the international space um, community, the Hubble Lemaitre Law. It's our guy. Martin, <laughs> in some aspects than Einstein and Edwin Hubble, we have a lot of evidence on our side that we forget. And so, so when you diminish something because you don't understand it, sometimes you're working against so many people in the universities that are that might come to your church, our churches, and we might just brush those guys off that need Jesus. So mm. we need to remember the history. It's really important for us to yeah, remember. That's so good. Well, Sam, we appreciate so much you taking the time at, at your schedule to to hang with us and to share your wisdom and insight. I know there are some listening that are struggling with their faith, and they've questioned some things, perhaps due to personal crisis or whatever. Can you take a moment and pray for those who are listening, especially those who are doubting at the moment? Sure. Father, uh, I want to come to you today. I remember walking through my own despair, my own fears, my own doubts. I really thought that that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have to walk it alone. Because I thought that's how apostasy worked. But then I realized in hindsight, what my mom recited every day at dawn is true after all. You walk with us. You are our shepherd. And you were holding my hand. And I never was once alone. And I was, as I was peering across the horizon in fear, longing for home, you were always there with me. Mm. For those of us struggling with shame and fear, and like your world is just spinning, I want you to know something. You were never once walking alone. He was with you, even when you couldn't tell. And he is there. He's just a prayer away. Put your heart into God's hands. He's not hard to reach. He's just a prayer away. So Holy Spirit, I pray for the palpable presence of God to come over all our friends that are walking in darkness and turn the light on. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for uh, for writing this book. It's yeah. going to help so many people. It really is. And uh, uh, make sure those that are listening, make sure you go and get a copy for sure. Um, get the real copy now or, or uh, you're hearing your voice say and uh, and and narrate the book definitely will be will be cool yeah. as well I, i'm yeah. the same as you chuck i like uh like hearing the author speak so it's it's great so yeah. and i also like the physical copy i yeah. can highlight i can write notes yeah. you know you can meet have, have coffee with somebody and open it and show somebody obviously if, this is going to be a great resource to, to have when it just comes to personal evangelism as well let me let me ask you this question and this may be way too early yet um to to ask this question but will you will you be able to or have you thought about taking the book to become a resource for the church as in like small group type stuff yeah uh, actually it after every chapter there are small group questions oh great excellent that's brilliant kirkus actually recommended it as perfect book to give uh for small groups and book clubs great great well, as a pastor, we, we have 
um, small groups, and I am definitely going to um, recommend this one for for one of our studies. We have a multiple different groups, and this is gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be great. So, um, yeah, we're I'm I'm pumped. Well, yeah. obviously Amazon, but t- and probably wherever books are sold. But how how can people connect with you? Yeah, um, you can come visit my website where all my social and all the media is listed at samdkim.com. Samdkim.com. And we'll make sure that we add that in the, yeah. in the notes when, when this is published, when it goes live. So way cool. Great. Well, it is close to the end of the show, and we always have this fun time, uh, which is called The Big Three. And so it's three rapid fire questions to you just to open your world up even more. I mean, just what you've explained already has been amazing, but this will go a little bit further. So do you want to start, Chuck, or you want me to? You, you, you want to go? You want me to yeah, go? I'll, I'll yeah, go. Yeah, you go. Okay. Go for it. Okay, right. so I love New York City. Been there a few times. Uh, me and my wife just love the area. Um, if we were coming to visit you, Where's the first place you would want to take us? That's hard, but I'm a foodie. Okay. In New York, I do this for friends. And if you guys are ever in New York, I will take you to the same place where we have the hookups of workers that work at this restaurant called Domo. Domo Domo is a renowned sushi restaurant in downtown Manhattan. Um, And we know some managers there that we get hooked up. Oh yeah. And you would eat sushi that you've never eaten before. Oh and man. it would blow your mind. I, I had sushi last night from Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Better there. Better there. <laughs> no, my, my daughter loves sushi, so we need to go. So I've been to every state in the United States but Alaska. I've never been to New York City though. I've been in, really? I've been to Buffalo, but I've never been to. I, I just need to go. It's it's on my bucket list, and and it's not even too far. I just need to make it happen just to come to this restaurant, Sam. Well, and and to see Sam as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, Chuck, you're up. Sam and sushi, sushi yeah, and Sam. Uh, all right, my my question is is simple: uh, Giants or Jets? Giants. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. All right. All right. Mine. Mine is, you mentioned the foodie thing, and I, I did have this written down, so it wasn't, I didn't just write it down. Um, best pizza in New York, where is it? There's Joe and Pat's in Manhattan as a chain, but it probably is the best in the city. Oh, okay, all right. Right, right on. Yeah, that's cool. So um, back to my question, though. I know where these are rapid fire, Giants or Jets. So I, I, <laughs> I, I know that there are... Rumors that Aaron Rodgers, who is huge here in the Peoria area, because it's either you're either Bears or Packers where we live, um, that he might be going to to the Jets. Would, would that sway you at all? And are you even are you even into football? I mean, are you more into you know the Knicks? I'm more or? into the Super Bowl commercials. Okay, yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> right. But the all right, is, yeah, we we beat Brady and we beat Boston. Twice, yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah. With Eli Manning, and I'm going with the Giants. 100%. Right on, right on. Okay. Good, right. good stuff, man. Well, thank you so much, Sam. This has been fun. 
Yeah, Sam, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, everyone, go and get the book, uh, devour it, and share it with others, right? That's, that's another, this type of topic is you, you want others to, to read it as well. Uh, but uh, Sam, we just want to thank you so much for being on Revival Town Podcast today. Uh, it's been rich. Thank you so much. Yes. So the book is called A Holy Haunting. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. There you have it, mate. Great, great stuff. Man, I can't wait for that book. I know. And we were a bit nervous going into it because when when you read his bio, <laughs> we're like, what are we doing I, interviewing yeah, I this you, man of this God? This is going to be the smartest guy that we've ever talked to, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, Harvard and, oh, man. He's, but he's what a great book. And a, a humble guy. Yeah. He just said, we asked him ahead of time. He's just like, just call me Sam. Yeah. And just, uh, just he's just, a, he's just good people, and I, I, I can't wait to see how God is going to use his book. Yeah. I love the title and and the co- the book cover. Did I mention that? Did yeah, I mention you did. I yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and also just a resource for the church. Uh, yeah. I think that's what's going to be so good with with that book. Uh, this just needing clarity on some of that. You know, the, going from deconstruction to reconstruction. A lot of people get stuck on deconstruction and they don't go to reconstruction. Yeah, because deconstruction without reconstruction is destruction. Yeah. Uh, ooh. Hey. You should be a pastor or something. <laughs> oh, well, I should hang out with Bill Vanderbilt more. <laughs> well, you know what's next, don't you? It's time. Tate and his mate. Why don't you tell everyone what this is? So Tate and his mate, this is a part of the podcast where Andy gives me... A British word that is a slang word and known in the UK. Sometimes he gives me a rhyming cog. <coughs> You're right, Mike. Oh. Woo, a holy haunting. Oh my goodness. I don't know what happened there. But uh, rhyming cogni slang. Sometimes he prepares an English dish, and I always just have to. You got to go with it. I have to go with it. I have to usually guess what it is, what the word is. And um, since Andy is from Britain, I am not. Yeah. I'm Tate. He's oh, mate. Because, you know, people, British is like, hey, instead of, like for me, I'm like, hey, what's up, man? What's up, dude? What's up, bro? You, it's, it's always, hey, mate. Hey, mate. And now I call other people mate. Oh, of Thanks you to do. you. Yeah. Because we're, hey, we're taking mate? We're taking the you world. Mean, oh, you're hanging out with Andy now, huh? <laughs> you don't have time for me. You don't have time for your bros and your dudes, huh? And now it's just, what's up, mate? Well, you know what? You can go sit with your friend Andy and eat his raisin bread. <laughs> Oh, man. I well, I, I haven't got raisin bran. Well, this week, I'm not doing a word. I said bread. Raisin bread. <laughs> I thought you said bread. Ra- raisin bread. Yeah. But oh, today, no. um, and, you know, I was preparing this just a minute ago, and I just realized I think I've done this one before. Really? But the difference is... The fact that I just said really means... It's, you have no it's clue. okay because yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't remember. It. Now the difference with this is my dad made this. Ooh, okay. He's a he's a good cook. So, do you want me to tell you what it's called, and then you just tell people what it's like to eat? Um, sure. Would you like some cream? On, G- give this? me some cream because I know if we did this before, you have never. 
You never brought whipped cream before. No, no, no. Okay. Mm. This is called, and my dad is pretty famous for it. Oh, can I guess what it's called? Okay. Cake. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you, th- you thought you were going to get it, didn't you? Eh? All right. Take this. Okay. All right. Mm. This is called Sticky Toffee Pudding. It's called Ticky Toffee Pudding? <laughs> sticky. Oh, Sticky. Toffee Pudding. Uh, okay. I I haven't had this before, I don't think. Okay. Sticky Toffee Stinky. Pudding. Sticky. Sticky. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sticky Coffee Pudding. Toffee. Toffee. <laughs> All right. Sticky. All right. Toffee. Sticky toffee pudding. There you go. Try it. Try oh, it. See. There we go. See. <laughs> mm. Wow. That's not bad. I told you. He's pretty wow. famous for it. Mm. What other podcasts do you listen to where the hosts are eating? <laughs> not, not many. So there you go. So wow. if you want to try this dish, just go on Google Sticky Toffee Pudding. It's really good. I'm telling you, mate. It's yeah, yeah. There you go. Mm. So uh, so that's what we're doing. Taint is mate. We are trying Sticky Toffee Pudding it today. Has butter in it. That can taste the butter. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of goodness. Yes. Oh man, this is goodness on a spoon right here. <laughs> I just fell off the spoon. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening to Revival Town Podcast again today. Make sure you tune in next week and uh, make sure you're telling people about Revival Town. Also, as you can see uh, by my shirt here, I am wearing the Revival Town Podcast uh, t-shirt. Right. It looks like you wear it every day. I think you need a new one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm washing a bit too much. Looks like you spilled sticky toffee pudding on it. <laughs> I need to get, I, I need to get some new ones too. Mine I was wearing mine last night. And um, hey look what I'm wearing though. I'm wearing Whoa, it's steady. <laughs> Dream Center. Oh, Dream Center shirt. There you go. Yeah. So if you can't get if you want to go and get Revival Town Podcast merch, go there. And if that's boring, go to Dream Center and get Dream Center merch. We've got a bunch there. And you can go to Rock Church as well and get some. Yeah, but here's what you need to do. Forget all of it today. Go to dreamcenterpeoria.org and get some coffee. Oh, come go, on. Go, go get some Dream Center coffee. I'm telling you, they roast their own beans. It's amazing. It's one of our trade programs for the kids. Yes, yeah. get it. Get it. And here, here's what you need to do. Yeah. Google how to make sticky toffee pudding. Oh, look at you. And then dip it in some Dream Center coffee, <laughs> and you will have a holy haunting. <laughs> See you next week, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revival Town Podcast. Make sure you're following us on social media and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, head on over to RevivalTownPodcast.com. Oh,